0: Straight from the slums of Seattle, the George Sanders Show strikes again. This week, tying in with George Clooney's new film, The Monuments Men, we'll be discussing uh, The Train, John Frankenheimer's film, which kind of is basically the same story uh, from 1964, starring um, Burt Lancaster. Um, Speaking of trains, we'll also be discussing Emperor of the North, a film from about a decade later um, from director Robert Aldrich, starring uh, Ernest Borgnine and Lee Marvin. Trains will also be our Cinema essential this week as we pick our favorite train films. And we will be discussing Philip Seymour Hoffman as our Person of the Week because he is no longer with us, and it's a tragic, tragic thing. Um, speaking of tragic
1: things, how are you, Sean? <laughs> uh, I'm okay. Yeah? Doing all right? Doing all right. Doing all right. Well, uh, how, uh, how are you? Have you recovered from your cat attack?
0: I've recovered from my cat attack. Um, uh, anybody that's listening to the show, I know tons of our fans were you know waiting waiting for the newest show and it's delayed by a couple of days and that's because I went to my brother's house um on the other side of the city and I don't go there very often and uh, he has two cats and I have a really bad allergy to cats and I pumped myself full of Claritin and I said you know what I'm gonna do this I'm gonna I'm gonna fight the good fight and I went over there for like three or four hours um it was our it was our midwinter baseball day where we just hang out and play baseball video games all day and, and wait for the opening day. <laughs> and uh, about two hours in, I started tearing up and uh, it was getting harder and harder to breathe. And uh, basically, yeah, I, the rest of the, d- the day and the subsequent morning uh, was completely ruined because of his stupid cats. So, uh, but I'm feeling better now, which is good. Um, and I will never, ever, ever go back to my brother's apartment <laughs> ever again.
1: Seems like a good plan.
0: Yeah, you know. Um, they are adorable cats, though, I must say that. So I think they, you know, they use their feline wiles to get me to pet them and stuff. And I thought I was in the clear, but I was I was totally wrong. But anyway, enough about me. <laughs> Let's talk about the train. I knew Jacques all my life. And
2: his wife sat with me. And my husband was killed the first year of the war and now i sit with her men are such fools men want to be heroes and the widows mourn
3: perhaps men are fools there are over a hundred involved in stopping that tree Switchmen, brakemen, yard gangs, station masters. God knows how many will be shot by Jacques. You know what's on that train? Paintings. That's right, paintings, art. The national heritage. The pride of France.
1: Crazy, isn't it? So the big uh, Hollywood movie opening this week, it was uh, George Clooney's Monuments Men with an all-star cast of uh, people who are saving art from Nazis. I don't really know if the movie's any good. It's gotten pretty poor reviews from what I've seen. All I've seen is the trailer, which I've seen like three times. And you haven't seen the movie yet either, right? I have not. Yeah, it. I am confident not having seen the film, but having seen the trailer, that it is vastly inferior to John Frankenheimer's The Train.
0: I will agree with that sentiment. Um, I actually want, you know, I want to see The Monuments Men. I, you know, I did a list at, on January 1st of, of, you know, the movies I'm excited about for this year. And, and that was on my list, you know, it was at the bottom. But, um, you know, it seemed like it could be a good time. But, yeah, the, the reviews coming out of it
1: uh, are are kind of slowing my trek to the cinemaplex. <laughs> yeah, and you know, we, we picked the train this week because it, it's, its plot is, is very similar to what we think the plot of The Monuments Men is about, and they're both basically about saving uh, artworks from occupied France from the Nazis who are trying to take it back to Nazi Germany uh, once the Americans haven't successfully invaded in the summer of 1944. Uh, in Monuments Men, George Clooney assembles a, a, an all-star team of art experts to go and, and save the art, apparently, and talk about why art is really important. Uh, in The Train, it, the, the task of, of rescuing the art falls to a local uh, French resistance cell headed by Bert Lancaster, who's like the head of a train yard in Paris. And he's got three guys that are working with him, left over from like the 18 that the cell started with. They've all been slowly killed by Nazis. And uh, the, his nemesis, the, uh, the Nazi in charge, is played by Paul Schofield. And he very much loves the art and very much wants to take it back to Germany with him, uh, ostensibly because it has monetary value to the Third Reich, but really just because he loves art. That's pretty much the setup for the film. Uh, it's basically structured as just a series of suspense sequences where the, the guys have to sabotage a train, delay a train, crash a train, do what they can to keep the Nazis from taking the art away before the Americans can come and liberate them. Does that pretty much sum it up, do you think? That pretty much sums it up. Uh, so we both liked this movie. You liked it even more than I did.
0: I loved this movie. I, 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 I shouldn't say I wasn't expecting much, but I, I definitely um, wasn't expecting to to, you know, fall head over heels in love with with this thing. But uh, gosh, what a picture! I mean, just from the very opening, um, which you know, the credit sequence is really. Um, bombastic and flashy as it's like showing the the nazis crating up all of the uh the artworks you know and they're stenciling the names you know renoir and uh picasso on on these boxes and stuff and um there's like this staccato kind of uh title card thing where it's showing you know the people involved in the film and it's like john frankenheimer you know it's like do um and then yeah it's just i mean this thing just runs at a clip i mean it's it's a fairly long movie it's so it's over two hours but um it's punctuated with these great, and I don't even want to call them, well, some of them are action sequences, but yeah, they're more like thrilling set pieces. Um, and and they're and they're phenomenal and and Lancaster, does all of his stunts himself in this, um, you know, and you can tell because it, you know, the camera won't cut and you'll see this guy rolling down a mountain or whatever, um, trying to escape these Nazis. Um, and it'll never cut. And then boom, there's Lancaster's face. I mean, he's threw himself down a mountain. Um, and you know, he jumped off a train. I mean, it's just, it's just a a treat. This movie is a treat.
1: Yeah, uh Lancaster took uh took a lot of pride in doing his own stunts. Like he he started his show business career as an acrobat and and that kind of training shows in a lot of his films like uh there's one called the Crim- Crimson Pirate where he plays a pirate and he does like a lot of swinging around on ropes and and jumping on boats and stuff and it's it's very cool but this one is is fantastic and and you you're right to point out the the tracking shots and there's a lot of that in the film uh, the director John Frankenheimer will let the let the action play out in these long takes that that add to the realism of what we're seeing not just in the stunt work but in like the little details of of the actions that the actors are taking. Like the, there's one point in the film where uh, where somebody has sabotaged a train and the Nazis are making Lancaster fix it. So he stays up all night and we see this, this, it's not really a long sequence, it's like three minutes, four minutes of him, you know, molding iron and making this part and carrying over this heavy, you know, piece of train and putting it on the train. And it's just this long sequence of Lancaster at work and we know it's him and you know it, it it gives this this uh this tactile sense of of the reality of what what these men were doing that is is really unusual for a Hollywood movie like you, you yeah. see you see that that kind of process detail more in in art house movies especially nowadays but to see it in in a Hollywood film from the from the mid-1960s it was uh, kind of surprising to me.
0: Yeah. And and like you said, it happens throughout the film. You know, there's a scene near the end where Lancaster um, is trying to derail a train um, and he, you know, you see him taking the spikes out of the ground and the camera just watches him. Like, you know, most films would show him do it once, you know, to one spike and then you'd kind of get the gist, but they show him methodically doing it to three or four in a row. And it just, you know, it takes its time showing that stuff. And yeah, this movie to me doesn't feel, and you know, not I'm not using I don't want to use the term Hollywood as like a uh, a bad term or whatever. But this doesn't feel like a Hollywood movie to me at all. Like it really feels more European. I mean, it was shot mostly, you know, like you said, it's going for this realism thing and. um it's it's not shot on sets. It's it's shot outdoors. It's um,
1: yeah. It was a it was a an independent production, but it was you know this Hollywood people. You know, oh like sure, Lancaster, Lancaster and Frankenheimer. You know, absolutely. Was, was released, I think, through United Artists. But I mean, it's it's it, it fits in like the broader definition of Hollywood.
0: Sure. No, absolutely. Um, it, but it, yeah, this movie is just a a refreshing jolt. And, yeah it's
1: it's 50 years old this year but it, it feels totally modern
0: oh my gosh I, I mean I, I would I would much rather pay twelve dollars to see this on a big screen than monuments Men right now I mean it's it's so cinematic and it's so visceral and um, you really get caught up in in the the story and and um, how they're gonna get away with this and and the movie what I love about it is that um, and it, it, is kind of tying in with our our later discussion of Emperor of the North, which that movie kind of builds to one moment in a way, and um, I think to its detriment, which we'll talk about then. Um, but this movie, it's got a few really big set pieces, and and there's a huge um, section in the middle of the film where they're trying where they um, reroute the train to get it. Um, you know they, the the Nazis think they're going into Germany, and there's this you know charade that's played out where they actually go on a different track and are actually just circling around France, and that's a big set piece that you might think would be at the end of the film,
1: but then there's this whole other like hour after that um, of more awesomeness. <laughs> uh, one thing that really strikes me about that sequence is. Um we don't really understand what's happening when it's happened. like like Lancaster has arranged this this plan off screen. So you know it's not, suspenseful in that we're trying to figure out in that we know what the plan is and we're trying to see if the Nazis are going to figure it out like we don't know what, what it is either but it, it, it turns out that it's like this coordinated effort of all of these resistance groups at all of these various stations to fool the Nazis and the plan works like his, his scheme comes off perf- perfectly, the Nazis never figure it out it ends in a big train crash and that's where that plot line would end in, exactly. in, a, in a normal Hollywood film But in this film, this film is dark. And and this film answers the question of, well, once the Nazis figured out what happened, wouldn't they just go kill all the people that deceived them? And they do. They do. The answer is yes. I mean... I think the
0: most striking shot in this movie, and there are a lot, but um, that scene I was mentioning uh, just a minute ago, which is near the end where Lancaster is taking the spikes out and he's trying to derail this train um, basically on his own at this point. He's he's trying to stay, you know, a few hundred yards ahead of the Nazis so that, and and do whatever he can. You know, he puts uh, plastic explosives in and the Nazis, you know, are delayed, but they get back on track and stuff. Yeah, um, he, he's the only one left. He's, he's, he's the only the one left. He's the one who can save the art. And he, so he's going through all this trouble and, um, and he, he's like, okay, you know, I, I'm, oh yeah, it's when he's got the plastic explosives and he's, his plan is to blow it up. But then the train comes around the bend and you see all of these people, all these, you know, French resistance people or people that have, you know, collaborated with them tied to the, or you know, on the front of the train as hostages um which is the nazis ploy to you know stop lancaster from you know destroying this train and it's a shocking scene um which is also brought home you know even heavier after that because then the nazis still kill everybody
1: (laughs) yeah and it's and it's shocking and it's uh it probably shouldn't be because it's it set up very early in the film how just how ruthless the Nazis are. With uh, uh, Michel Simon, the, the great French actor, plays a, an elderly train engineer who uh, who tries to delay a Nazi train and he sabotages it. But but his scheme is is easily figured out by the Nazis. And in just one shot, they they take him away and put him behind a wall and. We, along with Lancaster, hear like the gunshots as as these just executed right there, yeah. And it's just it's matter of fact for them, and it's it's really pretty horrifying.
0: Yeah, and and it happens, you know, throughout the. I mean, you know, um, there's another. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't want to go into each time this this stuff happens, but yeah, yeah. Um, the Nazis are just cold and brutal the entire time, which is what makes. Paul Schofield's character, the 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 Nazi that um likes art, it makes his character interesting because he has you know, all the other Nazis think that the art that they that of uh, you know, France's art is degenerate art and and they all don't see the the point of it and stuff. Um and they're they're more black and white
1: Nazi, you know they're, they're, villains. They're yeah, they're generic Nazi bad guys. They're, but he, they're psychopaths, you know.
0: Right. But he's an interesting character because while he's always a villain and he's no, you know, he's he's never more of a villain than he is at the very end of the film, which I don't want to really give away. But um, but he's interesting, too, because he has, you know, that opening scene where he goes of his own accord to just um take a moment and, and enjoy this art himself. In a in a gallery, in an empty gallery, you know, and he turns li- you know single lights on to view certain images. Um, and his his desire and passion to save this art is is really interesting because you know he he um, does things against his you know commanding officers' wishes. You know they they need the railway for you know more quote unquote important uh, military efforts and stuff and he he lies to them and says the train's already left so that he can get everything taken care of and um, right they he's need, an it, they need it to
1: to they need the the train and they need the the rail line to effectuate their retreat from paris as the the allies are approaching but he he's so single minded in his obsession with this art and and his his love for the art that it it really complicates the idea of of art as something that makes people better. Right. And that's kind of the the ideology, at least behind the trailer for Monuments Men, that the reason why it's worth it for them to go out there and rescue this art is because art in its aesthetic value makes us better humans. Right. Uh, Nobody in the film loves the art more than Paul Schofield, and he's the worst human.
0: Right. Well, and, you know... You can say that he is kind of an example of um, the worst aspects of like elitism or something. Because I mean, he has a very pointed exchange at the ver- at the end with with Lancaster, and he says, "You don't even know what you're doing. You know, you don't even know why you're doing this. You can't appreciate
1: this art like I do." Um, he, ha- he Lancaster doesn't even know what the art is. He's never even seen it. Never seen it. Never seen it. His, his seen motivation it. is not is not aesthetic it's not you know for the glory of france or the pride of france right. he's just doing his job and he's and doing that, it really well
0: and that's what makes this movie so uh, refreshing is that it doesn't lecture you like i like i from what i've read the the Clooney movie kind of
1: does to a degree um you yeah, know there's there's one short scene in the very beginning of the film where the the woman who's in charge of the gallery is talking to the resistance group and trying to to get them to understand why it's important that they save the art, that you know it's uh, it's you know France's duty to the world to protect you know these creations that that human beings have made, and and that's her attempt to explain it to them, and it doesn't work. Lancaster's no, they... like that's that's dumb. I'm not we're not going to risk our lives to do this. <laughs> right. But but his men, you know. Think that it's worth it, so they keep going forward, and he kind of gets dragged into it in order to to save them and to you know do what he can.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know, and all of his friends die along the way, just you know, for this one cause, and uh, which makes him by the end of the picture. I mean, by the end of the picture, he is um, because when you see him initially, he's he's. He's kind of running the show, you know, he's, he's kind of, he's up in the tower, you know, directing, um, which tracks, you know, to change and all that stuff. And by the end of the, you know, by the end of the film, he's a broken beaten down man. He's been shot in the leg. So he's been hobbling for the last, you know, 45 minutes or something. Um, and he's, he's fighting a, what feels like a losing battle. Cause even if he saves the train, um, he's lost everything else in the process, you know? Um, sure. The Nazis are retreating, but, um, what is, you know, when this movie closes, what does he go back to? You know, all of his friends are dead. Um, it's, this, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, there's the rebuilding of France. Well, I know, but and there's, there's Jean Moreau. well,
0: Yes, there is. Uh, she she pops up. <laughs> she pops up in the what? Maybe like the second
1: hour of this thing. Yeah, um, she she runs a, a hotel in one of the the towns that he's forced to stay in overnight. And at, at some point, she makes him a sandwich, I think, or a cup of coffee.
0: <laughs> and I actually really like the relationship between them because, um, once again, trying to ascribe what Hollywood would do with this movie. Um, um, she's very skeptical of him and and angry that he's brought this upon her you know she owns she runs a little inn, you know and he he's staying at the inn but you know because the nazis are having him sleep there overnight but you know he sneaks out and like causes this huge uproar and has nazis coming back and kicking down doors and stuff and her character is really interesting because you know, she she does side with him as we see, like when she gives him coffee and she kind of um lets him hide out. Um
1: but it's never this kind of swooning um It's not particularly romantic. Like they right. they, they only have like two scenes together and they hardly exchange any dialogue. But like there's there's so little dialogue in, in this film as a whole. But their relationship is like entirely through through looks. Right. And that's something I, I I think we we miss a lot in contemporary Hollywood. Like there there seems to be just wall to wall either music or dialogue in all of the movies we get. And yeah, I like the, I like the quiet.
0: Yeah, I think I read something. I was I was preparing for the show, and I think that it said um, Lancaster has like eleven lines of the or like eleven. He says like eleven words in the last like half hour of this movie. Yeah, because <laughs> it's basically him. You know, running over a hill with a machine gun, um, you know, trying to stay ahead of this train. And, uh, and that's another thing. This movie's called The Train. How awesome is that? You know what I mean? It's just like, that's what this movie is. You know, no, no, no piffle. This is, this is The Train. And to me, there's no better movie. You know, we're going to talk about our Cinema essential train movies later. And there are plenty of great movies that involve trains. But this is The Train.
1: <laughs> yeah it's, it's a great train movie and it's a great war movie too and I, I really like a lot of World War II movies and they're, they're very different from, from war movies about other kinds of wars and I think it, it's, it's because World War II was so clearly kind of a, a black and white kind of war like Nazis were really bad right and you know there was, there was good reason for the French to resist them uh, whereas later war movies kind of get complicated with the issue of of is the war really worth fighting? Sure. And then you get a, a little story like this in in the train where obviously the Nazis are worth fighting, but is the art worth fighting for?
0: Right. Exactly. Like
1: yeah, exactly. What
0: cost? Um, and you know the art represents. You know, as as we as we come to you know learn, it represents so much more than just. You know, it's you know monetary value or it's you know whatever it, it's a, it's a symbol um, so to speak um, and I, I actually yeah speaking of World War II movies I I always really like the French resistance movies that I've seen. Um, I, I really really enjoyed uh, Melville's Army of Shadows yeah. which was uh, you know released in the States not until like 2006 but it's from, also from the 60s it's a very uh, similarly kind of minimalist and, and spare yeah it's so, one that I thought of a lot while watching this, but I think this one might take the cake. <laughs> I know your favorite World War II film is saving Private
1: Ryan, so um. uh, no <laughs> my my favorite aspect of world War two movies are are the movies where the people just where it's it's people just doing their job because it's their job, and it's it's professionals doing doing work and and that's what what the train really captures. Like so many people sacrifice themselves in this film for the greater cause. It's like and they don't put any they don't seem to really put any thought to it. It's just matter of fact. It's like they just kind of assume like sacrifices become a habit in the course of the war because it has upended so much of of French society and of their world like the only fact of their existence is the war against the Nazis yeah there's a
0: really great scene um, in the second half of this where um, Lancaster's hiding out in like a barn and one of his collaborators comes in with this young kid I mean young the kid's like 16 or something and the kid's you know he basically says I want to help any way I can and it's it's clearly a death sentence, you know, that, um, but this, but this kid is, he's, he is the, the personification of that, where he's like, I've got to, I've got to get the job done. Um, cause it, you know, even if it makes his life short, it gives his life meaning. And, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a heavy hitting movie. Uh, but it's also, you know, but the the reason it hits so heavy is, is for that very reason that it doesn't belabor the point. It just gets the job done. And, and, you get swept up in it because you, you can't help it. Yeah, It's awesome. <laughs> yes, it is. So that's our discussion of the train. You should all go check it out if you haven't yet. Um, it's on Amazon Instant and uh, other channels, I'm sure. Uh, we'll be listening to a lot of Woody Guthrie today because I don't know of anybody else that sung about trains and wars as much as he did. So this is uh, one of his many versions of So Long It's Been Good to Know Ya.
2: I got to the camp and I learned how to fight fascists in daytime, mosquitoes at night got my orders to cross the blue sea so I waved goodbye to the gals I could see singing so long it's been good to know you so long it's been good to know you so long it's been good to know you there's a mighty big war that's got to be won we'll get back together again i landed somewheres on a fighting shore with 10 million soldiers and 10 million more while we was chasing that super race we sung this song in the chase it was so long it's been good to know you so long it's been good to know you so long it's been good to know you there's a mighty big war that's got to be won we'll get back together again so it won't be long till the fascists are gone all of their likes are finished and done we'll throw the dirt into their face and we'll walk away from that lonesome grave singing so long it's been good to know you So long it's been good to know you, so long it's been good to know you, there's a mighty big war that's got to be won. We'll get back together again.
0: All right, thanks, Woody. Uh, I should also mention that we heard Woody at the top of the show uh, with the instrumental song Railroad Blues. And now we're turning to uh, a segment of the show called What's Sean Watching?, uh, and so, Sean, what have you been watching?
1: Well, it's been, it's been two and a half weeks since our last episode, and uh, in, in that time, I've watched very few movies. I watched a lot of the Super Bowl. <laughs> oh yeah, how'd that turn out? Uh, it went well. Did it? Yes. It, did it, it went did well. our
0: local team win?
1: Yes, they did. <laughs> the, the, the local 53 came out uh, victorious. I've actually watched the Super Bowl, I think, three or four times in the (laughs) last two weeks. Uh, So yeah, there was that. And then I also watched, uh, we're getting, uh, in our downtime from the George Sanders show, we're getting ready to do another podcast on uh, Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli. So over the last week, I watched uh, this TV series that he worked on in the early 70s called Lupin the Third, which I liked quite a bit. Are you familiar with the show at all? Uh, I'm only familiar with the show in the abstract.
0: Um I've I've only seen The Castle of Cagliostro, the the first feature film that Miyazaki did which is um a continuation of the show and I love the movie. I I, I the movie actually is one of my sleeper
1: uh Miyazaki favorites cuz it's it's a whole bundle of fun, but I've never actually seen the show. Right on. Uh, I haven't I haven't seen the movie yet. I was going to watch it, but it's on Hulu dubbed, so I have to go and get the DVD because I don't watch things that are dubbed. Because yeah, that's, that's stupid. That's dumb. Uh, the TV show, though, I was I was really impressed by. Like, I, I'm not that familiar with with anime television at all, but it seemed so so far ahead of its time, especially in the the first half of the season. Like, I, have you seen Cowboy Bebop? I'd seen a little bit of Cowboy Bebop. It um, was it was really striking to me how how clear an influence Lupin III had on that show, just on on the structure, the relations of the characters, uh, the kind of uh, the way the, the the stories are built, and just the whole mood of the show is very similar to that. So, yeah, yeah, it's, I should uh, check it out. Yeah, Lupin is like a, a master thief, and he's got a sidekick who's a sharpshooter. And then another pal who is uh, is like descended from samurai and has a sword that can cut through anything. And there's this this woman who kind of floats around the margins of the story, often taking a, an active role uh, called uh, Fujiko Mine. And in the, the first half of, of this series, she's a really, really fascinating figure because she's not... Ever really on Lupin's side? Like she will, she will work with him, but she always ends up, you know, kind of screwing him over in the end and leading him on and kind of using her attractiveness to make him behave stupidly. And then in the in the second half of the the season, she becomes really kind of passive and like a sidekick character. And I was really kind of disappointed with with that turn. How she became a much more conventional female. That's character. a shame yeah yeah uh is she in the movie what did what is she like in the movie you
0: know it's been years since i saw the movie i'm going to rewatch it for the podcast so um i don't even want i don't even want to try and remember because i will screw it up um i just remember a lot of the i remember the goofy humor of the movie um and just really fun action stuff so i don't really remember the the characters
1: so much yeah, because uh, Miyazaki, he only directed I think four or five of the episodes, and and Isao Takahata, his his partner in Ghibli, directed a, a few of them also, but they weren't like the driving creative forces behind the show, as I understand it, at least not in the beginning. And I, I I worry that the the turn the episode make into being more more con or the season made the turn the season took into being more conventional and less. Kind of amoral in its uh, in its view of its characters uh, was due to the influence of, of Miyazaki and, and Takahata, whereas like the early episodes are really you know pretty. Uh, there's a lot of like dark comedy and, and it's pretty sexually explicit and is mm. much better than <laughs> the later stuff, which is still really fun and really cool and and the the animation is is just fantastic throughout the whole the whole season, but. Narratively, I, I like the, the the beginning of it a lot more.
0: Right. Well, yeah, I'll be interested to hear how. Uh, I would like to watch it myself too. Hopefully, I'll get to it sometime. Um, but keep me informed. Will do. All right. Well, we got some news to get to now. Uh,
1: <sighs> there's this Woody Allen thing about Woody Allen. Yeah. There's you know trading, you know, open letters to in the New York Times and. My my basic take on the on the whole Woody Allen saga is is that we don't know anything and we can't know anything. So it's probably best for us to not have an opinion about it. I think it's safe to say that everyone involved is pretty messed up, and we don't know whose fault it is, and we can't know.
0: Yeah i I really didn't want to talk about this on the show, and I think we'll just stop now. But yeah, you know. I, this whole thing just makes me sick and 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 everybody involved in this is coming out in really poor light and uh it's it's just an unpleasant story
1: so um yeah it's it's a a hard thing to separate like the the art from the artist but i I feel it's something we have to do because we don't know these people right And, and there's all kinds of stories about people who have made movies that maybe aren't as famous as Woody Allen, and certainly not as uh, as uh, sensationalistic as this story. But I, I assure you that there are revered directors out there who were terrible human beings. Yeah, Woody oh, Allen's absolutely. not the only one.
0: Yeah, um, and not just filmmakers. You know, <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 just a whole clusterfuck of. Uh, creepy awfulness and yeah <laughs> let's
1: talk about movies instead how does that sound
0: <laughs> yeah
1: i mean it, I, that's kind of what we have to do it's like the the people who make movies the people who entertain us are not role models like charles barkley was not a role model <laughs> hey speak for yourself <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. you know, I, I mean, we 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 look up to people who make things that we like, and that's that's natural. And it's it's really disappointing when they they turn out to not be as you know as great as their creations.
0: Yeah, but you know, and it's something that as I get older, I'm I'm much more accepting of. And this is you know on a less uh, sensationalistic angle. But you know, there are people who there are people who I used to dismiss out of hand because I disagreed with, you know, their politics or their personality or whatever, which was really stupid because I missed out on a lot of great performances or cinema and stuff. And now it's much easier for me to just be like, well, that movie is totally amazing, even though that person is, you know, homophobic or, <laughs> or whatever. You know, I'm not, I'm not thinking of anything specific at the moment, but, you know. Sure. So anyway.
1: I don't yeah, know. I uh William Goldman the the great screenwriter was on the uh, the Bill Simmons podcast of all things recently and he said as William Goldman tends to do he said something really really insightful I thought and he said it really well which is that the the people in Hollywood we we don't know what they're really like we can't know like they're unfathomable to us and he said it in in relation to to Philip Seymour Hoffman, and and I think it applies equally well to to Woody Allen. And when when stories like this with 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 Hoffman and and, and Allen, when they they come out, it just kind of brings that home to me. Is that no matter how many you know of Woody Allen's movies we see, we will have no idea what he is like as an actual human being. Right. Yeah. Let's just talk about art. <laughs> Well, speak, speaking of art, uh, every every uh, six months or so it seems that some New York media outlet publishes something annoying on art and guilt. And this week it was the New York Times Magazine which published uh, this article on guilty pleasures uh, by uh, Adam Sternberg called All of the Pleasure and None of the Guilt. Did you read this? I, I sent it to you. What did, what did you think?
0: Oh, I I actually thought the the idea behind the article was was good. I mean, he was he was advocating for getting rid of the concept of calling things guilty pleasures and just liking what you like. And uh, you know, that's that's another thing that I took me a while to come around to, um, where I I used to feel shameful or or you know whatever saying that I you know, and of course I can't think of anything right now because I have just impeccable taste, but. You know where I would where I would be like, well, yeah, it's kind of cool, but you know, I know it's kind of lame at the same time. And and finally, I've just been like, fuck it, that's awesome, and I
1: love it, and screw you, you know. <laughs> yeah, my so, what was your he, take on he, he comes about it from a different angle though. Like he's what he's rebelling against is the the aesthetic should just the idea that we well, should yeah. watch things, which he's he's conflating. Aesthetics with morality. And, and that's a problem with the word should because it has a, a, a kind of moral imperative connotation to it when the aesthetic should is, is much different. Like it, you don't become a better person by watching better movies, but you become a better film viewer by watching better movies. And it's okay to feel guilt about not having seen movies that you should see. Like guilt is guilt is a motivator, to paraphrase something that Ignatiy Vishnevetsky tweeted in regard to this article this weekend.
0: Well, yeah, but I, don't, I don't,
1: I mean... I feel, I feel guilty that I haven't seen more Satyajit Ray films, and it's a motivator for me to go out and, and watch more of his films. And every time I do, I've seen four of them now, and every time I do, I, I think I should watch more of them because he's really great.
0: Right, but your history's greatest monster, so that goes without saying. Um no, I no, I understand that. I mean, I think that was an aspect of his thing. Um and yeah, the whole should thing is yeah, i think that was a flawed idea in his in his thing. Um but I, I feel like the overall idea behind it was was trying to embrace what you like without um fear of, you know, reprisal or whatever. But yeah,
1: I, I Yeah, well, I, agree. I think, I mean, I think I, that uh I think that there are far more imagined snobs out there than are actual because like most most of these guilty pleasure articles kind of set up this straw man of, of people who disapprove of the fact that you like, you know, Paul W.S. Anderson films or something, which is which is absurd. I, I, I remember uh, an argument about Paul W.S. Anderson in, in particular, uh, where uh, I think it was like a comment section of some like A.V. Club article or, or IndieWire. I think it was IndieWire. Uh, where somebody was complaining that that critics will look down on on fans of of Paul W S Anderson movies in favor of like the you know the latest Lars Von Trier or something, when it, the only people I've ever seen defend Paul W S Anderson are film critics.
0: Yeah. No. Absolutely.
1: But there's this this kind of perception that low genres and and you know uh action films and straight to video movies are movies for for dumb people and actual film critics will look down on you if you admit to liking a, a universal soldier film it's just it's just not the case
0: yeah i mean it de- i think it's de- it depends on what critics you're reading cuz i i feel like there are some big name critics and i'm not going to get into name calling here sure. but There are people that um, I read for a while and got really fed up with them because they came to things with preconceived notions about the, you know, the value of it, um, and denigrated it just because of of where it fell on some perceived spectrum. Um, So,
1: yeah, I I I think I I think the blanket. uh... There are are bad critics out there, but for over fifty years, there have been critics fighting those bad critics like there's uh in the 50s there was manny farber who who came up with like the white elephant and and termite art distinction in you know in favor of the the termites there's uh andrew saris elevating uh uh genre film directors like alfred hitchcock and and howard hawks to the the directorial pantheon like this is a, a long fight that's gone on through the whole history of criticism and to just kind of assume that all criticism is is snobbery really bugs me.
0: Oh yeah, well, yeah. And I that's... think
1: that's the ideology behind this you know, the whole concept of guilty pleasure and the whole concept of getting rid of the guilty pleasure. The only one the only people who talk about guilty pleasures are non film critics. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the snobbery comes from the masses, not from the supposed elites. Okay. <laughs> I get worked up about this, I'm sorry. I know, you do. <laughs> I really
0: didn't expect this, uh, this article to set you off like this. Jeez. Um...
1: <laughs> but the, well, uh, talk... but the, uh, the one thing I think that that ties it back in into our discussion of the train is that and also of the, the the Woody Allen story, is that there is no relation between aesthetics and morality. Just because a film is good doesn't mean it's moral, and just because a filmmaker makes a good film doesn't mean that, that, that he or she is moral themselves. And just because you watch good movies doesn't make you a good person. Right. There are lots of horrible people who have great taste in art.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um...
1: Yeah, I have nothing to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, speaking of guilty pleasures, uh, Shirley Temple, <laughs> who was one of the, the greatest stars in, in Hollywood history in a series of films she made in the late 1930s that do not have a particularly great critical reputation, but she, her talent as a performer was, was undeniable. And, and she died today at the age of, what, 86? 85, I think. 85. Yeah, Uh, she was. She she wasn't in films for her whole career. Like at the end of the nineteen forties, I think she went into politics and diplomacy. Remember, she was the ambassador to Czechoslovakia. I think in the oh yeah, she had a
0: long storied career um, as a diplomat. Um, I mean, I think she retired when she was like twenty two from acting. Um, So she had most of her life was not in front of the
1: camera. Yeah, and I've I've only seen a handful of her movies and and some clips. She's she was one of my mom's favorite stars. Like her uh, her movies that that she did as a as a child actress. I've seen more of her films as an adult, actually. Oh, really? I, are you a, a Shirley Temple fan?
0: Uh, I'm not. I mean, I'm not not a Shirley Temple fan. I've seen I've seen clips. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a, a movie all the way through. Um, you know, I, I do want to see Wee Willie Winkie just because John Ford. Um, that's, but uh, that's
1: the one that I've seen of of her as a child, and she is fantastic in that movie, and it is a great film and yeah she is really amazing as she's what like an eight years old I think when she made that mhm yeah, I don't doubt it um my one <laughs> my
0: one Shirley temple fact or story or connection is uh her daughter Lori uh played bass for the melvins in the late 80s and early 90s um she went by the name lorax and she was like five foot four and she had like long black hair she looked like a witch and uh she was totally awesome like seeing this diminutive little woman rocking out like playing like the heaviest music ever was totally cool so um my thoughts go out to Lorax, wherever she is now, um, for the loss of her mother, who is, you know, by all accounts, mm-hmm. even though we can't know a person, Sean, yeah, uh, a pretty interesting character,
1: yeah, and and a great actress, uh, and a great actress. Uh, she's she's fantastic in movie Willy Winky, like I said, also in The Bachelor and The Bobby Soxer, and uh, John Ford's Ford Apache, which is uh, one of oh her, yeah, her, I've her- seen. I've seen roles. her in that. Yeah, yeah. She's, it's she's
0: funny because, yeah, you don't think of her. You know, in my head, I just
1: picture her as the kid. But yeah, absolutely, Fort Apache. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's cool. I have uh, the Littlest Rebel saved on uh, on a TiVo around here somewhere, uh, which I, I have yet to be able to bring myself to see because the uh, the, the the complex tangle of, of segregationist politics that went into making that film is. Uh, is tough for me she she stars in it with uh, bill bojangles robinson uh which was a, a kind of a pioneering team-up of like the little white girl with the the older black man in the 1930s and they were a big star and that was you know a, a progressive thing for the time but this this movie is it's like set in the south and he's her slave right yeah that's... yeah and i i just i haven't been able to 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 make it through that yet yeah it's that's kind of difficult to stomach <laughs> yeah it's uh Hollywood films in the thirties can be a, a difficult uh, road to hoe sometimes you're you're telling me, gosh, um <laughs> Someday we... we'll talk about some of the John Ford movies with Step and Fetch it in it
0: <laughs> Lindy and I went and saw um Buster Keaton's college um last summer. And she went to the restroom and I'd seen it before. She hadn't seen it before. And um, she went to the restroom in the middle of it. And as soon as she left, I, I knew that the scene where Buster Keaton's in blackface and he's working as a waiter, like in an all, you know, um, all black restaurant or whatever. Uh, it was about to come up, you know, and so she leaves the she leaves the room. Where he's doing you know some sort of track and field thing or whatever some you know, and then she walks back in the into the auditorium, sits down and uh you know you just kind of like crumple up in your chair while he's you know making these very very uncomfortable pantomime jokes
1: it's 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 hard hard to stomach. But anyway, yeah. we should we should move on to the 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 biggest news of, of the last couple of weeks, which is the, the death, the untimely death of, of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And he is our, our person of the week. This was uh, this was uh, speaking of hard to take. This was hard to take. This was really unexpected for me. I, I am still having difficulty processing it. Uh, what are your what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, it was you know an utter shock. Um, you know, I I don't follow celebrity gossip much at all. I'd heard that you know he had um, checked himself into rehab, you know, like a year ago or something and stuff. So I guess it wasn't totally
1: out of the blue. You know, when I heard it, I was like, oh, yeah, but I, um, I had I had no idea. I. I'd... I knew nothing about him as as a person. I only knew about him as an actor. So this right. was like a, a total surprise to me. Like I I didn't know he was an addict at all.
0: Well, I th- apparently he hadn't been for you know he'd been he'd been sober 20, for, for like, like twenty three years. years. So. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's it's a it's a big shock. Um. You know, who doesn't like P.S. Hoffman? I mean, the guy was in so many he he inhabited so many icon, iconic roles in so many iconic movies. I mean, you just rattle off the movies that he was in in the last 10, 15 years. And they're like the best American movies of the last decade. You know, you got the master, you know, all the, all the Paul Thomas Anderson stuff, which I think that's really where it's going to be felt the hardest is, um, you know, he did five movies with, uh, PT Anderson and, um, they were, you know, he was great in all of them. And, um,
1: yeah, well, he he was arguably the, the best actor of his generation.
0: Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to get into that argument, <laughs> but he's, yeah. I he's, mean, I, you
1: can't, you can't really rate actors, but, you know. Right.
0: But, uh, no, he was,
1: so, he was so good.
0: He was so good. And, and he's one of those guys that, you know, the first time you see him, at least for me, you know, it was like, oh, who's this guy? You know, what was
1: um, what was your your first? Uh, you
0: know, play? I think it was actually Todd Salons happiness, happiness um, okay. from 98. Um, he plays. It's a Todd Salons movie. So watch out. He kind of plays a creepy dude. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but he plays this real sad sack kind of guy. Um, and it was just an unflinching, you know, totally uh, brave kind of performance from him you know and shortly thereafter I think around the same time was you know Big Lebowski which he doesn't have a huge role in but you know he he definitely makes an impression in a movie full of great
1: performances um, yeah the the first thing I remember seeing him in uh, he was in Scent of a Woman I think but uh, I don't remember him from that I don't remember anything about that movie uh, hoo ya yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah I think he just broke Skype there with that <laughs> Uh, uh, it was uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's first film, Hard uh, Eight, which yeah. he has a, a very very small role. He's uh, at a craps table with with Philip Baker Hall, and it's just it's just one scene. He's this dice player. He's a loudmouth and he's cocky and he's you know he's he's kind of taunting Philip Baker Hall and he's he's vivacious and then and then Philip Baker Hall is is just calm and and professional. And he just kind of shuts up P.S. Hoffman. And you see, like, this total change in this this really, you know, minor character that doesn't play any role in the movie at all. But he, he creates a, a wholly, you know, a wholly real person in just, like, his three minutes of screen time. And, and just from seeing him in that film, I knew he was, like, somebody who was going to be great in, in every movie that I saw him in. And he always was.
0: Yeah, he always even you know he appears in things like Moneyball, and he plays Art Howe, and he's in like one scene, you know. But you're like, he brings it, you know. He brought it every time, and yeah, uh,
1: he, he's the best thing in the Talented Mr. Ripley. I never seen it. Uh, it. It's it's an okay movie. It's uh, Matt Damon, Kate Blanchett, good cast. But he he plays uh, Matt Damon is is Ripley, this guy who's like a kind of passing himself off as a rich guy and, and Hoffman sees right through him and he sees right through him and just kind of toys with him in just kind of a, a sadistic kind of dickish way, but it's, but also kind of hilarious.
0: What's your, so what's your, what's your favorite PS Hoffman role? Which one would you like, would, you know what, what did you think of the when you
1: first heard of him passing what was the role that jumped to your mind honestly i think his i think his best performance is in the master i think he's he's amazing in that film and it's a, a really complicated performance it's not as he doesn't get to be as as showy as joaquin phoenix but it's the much more important role i think um but i don't i don't know man it, it might be uh, magnolia where he's he's the the only normal good person in that entire film, yeah, and he's the the moral center of that film yeah uh and it it was also heart eight just kind of that that guy so, from heart eight
0: so you're gonna pick everyone that he did with Paul Thomas Anderson except punch drunk love uh I, well I, <laughs> you asked me what what
1: I thought of first I know That's I'm just kidding I'm
0: just kidding um yeah. I mean I don't know if I can answer that question or not, but you know, I did watch um on the day of his passing in, in his you know honor, I watched Synecdoche, New York and uh I can't I can't picture anybody else pulling that role off. Um because it is unflinching and, and just unforgivable. I mean it's it's and 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 to be such a depressing character in a such a depressing movie, but remain sympathetic and watchable.
1: I mean, I, it's just, it's just incredible. So yeah, uh, without, without him, that movie would be unbearable because, (laughs) because it's, it's so in its own head and it's so in, in Charlie Kaufman's head, it's so inhuman. Yeah. But, but, but Hoffman, is so human and is so just kind of vulnerable and open as performer that he he grounds all of like the 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 Charlie Kaufman uh, tricks and and twists and makes it makes it emotional and makes it makes it you know connect to an audience as opposed to just being like a, a puzzle or like a clever you know game with words.
0: Yeah, no he he absolutely sells the humanity in there and uh it's it's an astounding um performance and it's a shame we won't get many more. I mean, we won't get any more. I mean, I guess he's 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 got a couple of things he wrapped up, but uh, you know, we won't be able to, you know, see him 10 years down the line and, you know, it, it would be interesting to see cuz I think he would have been a really he would have been the, one of those actors, and we talked about this with Paul Newman, and we talked about it with other people, that would have been great their whole career. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, he would have been great in his
1: 80s, you know. Um, well, like I said, I think, I think The Master is his best performance, and it's one of his most recent. Like, I, I think he was only getting better as an actor. Like, as great as he was, you know, he was only just, you know, refining the craft. Yeah.
0: No, he, he, was, he was great. Well... With that, let's, let's talk about something, I don't know, less, less depressing. Less depressing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, our Cinema Essential this week is Train Movies, uh, tying in with the films we're discussing this week. And when I suggested Train Movies, you, uh, you pointedly said to me, okay, but let's not both pick Buster Keaton's The General. So uh, what yeah. film did you pick, Sean, besides The
1: General? I, I, uh, I have a tie. You have a tie. I have a tie. for A A
0: railroad tie?
1: Yes, a railroad (laughs) tie. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Uh, Of a a couple film noirs uh, set on trains. uh, The Narrow Margin and The Tall Target. uh, Both of which make uh, terrific use of their their train locations. They're almost entirely set on trains. And uh, The Tall Target is an interesting movie. It's about uh, Abraham Lincoln on his way from New York to Washington. Uh, for his inaugural. and there's like rumors that he's going to be assassinated on the train. So uh, secret Service is is trying to protect him on the train. And there's like, you know various people that they think might be assassins. And then the narrow margin is like a, a cop is escorting a, a witness to uh, like a mob boss's trial, and the, the gangsters are gonna try and kill her on the train. But uh, there's, you know trains and and films noir, Go together, really great. The, it's the confined space—it's like the the moving lights give ample opportunities for really expressive shadows. You know, you can put the lights out and have like bangs and slaps, and then the lights come back on, and you don't know where everyone's been rearranged. And yeah, when I when I think of of train movies, I think of, of films noir, and and these are are two uh, really good ones that don't have the uh, the high profile of like your your Double Indemnity or your uh, out of the past you're more prestige noirs
0: right yeah those sound great i should i should definitely um check those out i don't think I, i've heard of either of them so thank you for that uh, you are welcome <laughs> <laughs> you finally i've known you i've known you 10 years and finally you do something for me something nice um my pick is uh, also from a similar, you know, from the same era, roughly, uh, and it's Hitchcock's *The Lady Vanishes*, um, which was, I believe, his last British film before he came over here and started making uh, *Rebecca* and, and all uh, I those. I think
1: he needed Jamaica in between those. Damn
0: stories. it! <laughs> okay, well, it's one of his last, uh, uh, let's and it's say totally it's, his, awesome. it's
1: his last good one.
0: But there we go. How's that? Uh, lady Vanishes is fantastic. Uh, Dame Maywitty plays the uh, the lady of the title. Uh, and she's on this train. And guess what? She disappears. <laughs> and uh, Michael Michael spoiler Redgrave... Alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Uh, Margaret Lockwood and Michael Redgrave are the, kind of the two main characters. And um, Lockwood's trying to figure out where the heck this woman went. And I don't want to spoil it, but it's it's... It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's got the thriller elements, but it's also really funny at times. And uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's you know up there with Hitchcock's best stuff. I really really like The Lady
1: Vanishes. I agree. Have you seen uh, the sort of sequel to it? Uh, uh, Night Thomas Tank. the Tank Engine Night Train to Munich. Oh no, I I have not. Um, it's with the uh, the two the two uh, very British guys who are always like talking about cricket and and complaining about stuff that are on the train with them, right? And they kind of they're like the comic relief, and they kind of get caught up in the action towards the end. Uh, they have another adventure on a train. I think it's a. I think Carol Reed directed it. Yeah, it's Carol Reed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not nearly as good. Well, it's it's hard to. Hard to be. But it's not not a bad movie at all. And that also takes place on a train.
0: I like train movies. I don't know if I like train movies more than like steamship movies. I've always really liked movies that are set aboard like ocean liners and stuff. But (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever ridden the train? I have ridden the train. I I rode the train uh, from Seattle down to Oakland uh, to visit my family. And, um, you know, I got the cheap seat and uh, the train was delayed by 12 hours and... uh, Yeah,
1: it it didn't go over as well as I wanted to. It wasn't as romantic as I thought it would be. Yeah, the last uh, my last two trips to the film festival in Vancouver, I've taken the train and uh, wondered why we never did it before because it's it's so cheap. It's actually cheaper than like the gas it would take to drive to Vancouver and back. And that's Mm -hmm. not even counting like what you pay for for parking at a hotel for a week. So
0: yeah, Yeah, I mean it's
1: it's it's a long ride like, you know, four hours, six hours, I think, but it's pretty easy. Well, I'm going to Germany
0: in, uh, the summer and you can't, you
1: can't take the train to Germany. No, I,
0: <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, I was in a band, uh, called Sorry Safari and we had a song called Train to Hawaii, which, uh, I was really proud of. I, th- I thought that was a good title, but, uh, no, but I will be riding the train throughout Germany cause we're going to go, uh, hither and thither. So, um, It'll be interesting to be in a country where, you know, the train is actually, I don't know, widely used. (laughs) But anyway.
1: uh, So speaking of of riding the rails through the great Northwest, let's uh, move on to our second movie this week, uh, Robert Aldrich's Emperor of the North.
3: 1933, the depths of the Great Depression. An army of homeless men roamed the land, stealing rides on the railroads they were nomads who lived by no law but their own, and dedicated to their destruction was the railroad man who stood between them and the trains. Hang on, for action adventure that roars like thunder, a hobo called A-Number One, and a railroading man named Shaq meet in battle at breakneck speed in Emperor of the North. man who lives by his wits. I'm trusting you, kid. Cover for me.
4: Hey, you come back
3: here! He takes what he needs and goes where he wants, and always travels first class. You will confess, sinner. The Lord is my tabernacle. and his ship is filled with gold. That's for The holy gates.
4: Hallelujah,
3: brother! Day number one has been everywhere, but never on the number nineteen, Shack Street, where nobody rides for free and lives. Next time I pick up an empty, I'm not going to have it burn. You know. never let it happen again. Never. Shaq's weapons, a steel hammer, a length of chain, and he'll use them with pleasure if he catches any bomb on his train.
0: That was a clip from Emperor of the North, Robert Aldrich's 1973 film. Uh, it stars Lee Marvin as kind of like uber hobo. Uh Literally, his name is A number one. So he's he's like top of the top of the chain of the hobos. Uh, and he's riding the rails in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, the the train that no one's ever been able to conquer is the one run by Ernest Borgnine, uh, who plays uh, a conductor by the name of Shaq, um, who's just this ruthless guy that just has this hatred of hobos. He's just, he cannot stand hobos. They're vermin, uh, in his mind. And so there's basically this war that's waged uh, between the two of them to see if Lee Marvin can ride the train all the way to Portland um, without Ernest Borgnine killing him. <laughs> um, that's basically the story of Emperor of the North. And uh, the the movie starts with uh, a one-two punch as we, we really get a sense for these characters. The first scene is Borgnine catching um, another hobo on his train and uh basically beating him with a hammer uh until the hobo falls under the train and is cut in half on the tracks um which we see quite quite explicitly very explicitly yeah it's it's pretty brutal and then uh the next scene where we meet lee marvin he's uh in his little encampment um in the forest and some guys including Keith Carradine, who I should mention who is kind of this up and coming hobo um try to steal his uh his goods and uh, Lee Marvin ends up beating everybody up uh with a chicken <laughs> with a live a live chicken I should I should state it's not like a chicken breast or something he's he's actually wielding uh uh you know a flapping chicken and smacking people across the face with it. So, uh, this movie gets off to a great start. Sean, does it maintain that uh, awesomeness for the rest of its two hours?
1: well it it it's hard because it doesn't get more awesome than Lee Marvin with the chicken
0: <laughs> It really doesn't
1: so i mean it it would be a, a difficult task for it to maintain that level of of awesome throughout its two hour or so running time but i I think it's it's really good i think it uh, I like this movie a lot you were you were a little more mixed on it though I, think.
0: I was a little more mixed on it. I think the first hour is kind of a waste it's kind of it's really bloated basically um the first hour of this movie after that setup is scenes of characters basically describing what i just described over and over again like oh the shack he's no one's ever beaten the shack before you know, but I know someone that can do it. A number one, and so it kind of goes back and forth with that a lot. Um, You see a lot of the railroad guys, you know, um, placing bets on if they can, if uh, you know, a number
1: one is going to be able to do it. Uh, I, I, I liked all that that stage setting kind of stuff, and and kind of setting up what what you know the the hobo's life is like, and what the the train people's life is like, and they get to to, to talk in the, like this wonderful 1930s slang. And I, I, I like, I like that stuff.
0: I like it in the theory. it just, for me, it was a little too repetitive. Like it, it kind of went to that. Well, one too many times. Um, but that being said, I think the second hour when the movie, when the plot really kicks in and, um, when the, the contest proper begins. Yeah. Uh, I think it's pretty bitching. Uh, at 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 that point, and and I think it builds to a really awesome climax, which um, isn't really spoiling anything because it, it's pretty much set up from the word go, where basically Lee Marvin and Ernest Borgnine are gonna fight each other uh, till one of them, you know, gets thrown off a train, a yeah. moving train. So uh, I think the I think the end is really strong. Um, you know, I, it's a fun movie. Don't get me wrong. You know, but I you know. Uh, six days
1: out of the week, I'd rather watch The Train than Emperor of the North. But um, yeah, I mean that's that's a, a, a difficult standard to hold it from. I, I'm assuming you'd rather watch Emperor of the North than than pay twelve dollars to go see Monuments Men. Oh yeah, I mean,
0: yeah. I as you do too. I think one of our favorite actors uh, is Keith Carradine. No, I'm <laughs> saying uh, one of our favorite actors is Lee Marvin. Um, I love Lee Marvin in anything lee marvin could just sit in a wicker chair and take a nap for two hours and i'd be into it um and he's such a badass that i you know i i just love him and i I think he's fantastic in this you know he worked with robert aldrich um most famously on the dirty dozen um and but i think he's fantastic here i think he's great i love ernest borgnine here um you know he's just he's just so angry the whole movie like he's just like gritting his teeth
1: um his gapped teeth and just um I, I gotta say have you seen uh marty i've never seen marty uh badass ernest borgnine is much better than sad sack ernest borgnine
0: i believe it um yeah i, I just he's just a um, a brick house of of just hatred, and um, you, you know he's really relishing this role. I think where he's just like, you know, he knows what's expected of him. He knows he's the bad guy, and he he really runs with it. and And I love how everybody in the movie hates him. You know, the hobos obviously hate him. His coworkers hate him. His coworkers hate, His coworkers hate the guy. I mean, they just they just can't. But they but they fear him. You know, and that that goes a long way to show you know. What you know? What he's capable of, or whatever. So, um, I like
1: I like Keith Carradine too. He's he's uh, one of my favorite Carradines. I <laughs> he's probably he's probably my third favorite Carradine. I think he's I think he's okay here. I think he
0: he's kind of got a thankless role because he plays the upstart kid that you know thinks he's all that. You know, he thinks he's hot stuff, and um, and time and again it you know lee marvin has to show him that he doesn't know what he's talking about you know and uh and so you know he shares a lot of screen time with lee marvin and i'm sorry unless you're like to share him a or something it's gonna be hard to share screen time with lee marvin and not come out as inferior yeah but well, uh, i
1: think i think uh Aldrich uses that effectively because he's so he's so callow and and arrogant and And so clearly he's the only one who thinks he belongs on the train with, with Lee Marvin and and Ernest Borgnine and that he really, you know, puts that across in the character.
0: Yeah, no, I know. But, but at the same time, I'm also kind of annoyed with him. (laughs) Like, I know, I know what you mean. And I know that it's intentional, but at the same time, like, um, some of his line readings, uh, you know, it, it was just a little, he's a little less naturalistic than Lee Marvin. Um, yeah and, well,
1: yeah, you don't get more natural than Lee Marvin like I know I'm
0: just saying it you know it, it takes you it take, took me a little bit out of the picture um when when he would be pontificating or, or what have you but but these are small potatoes. I think this movie's a lot of fun. Um,
1: I think i uh, I, I got uh, I got two thoughts on on this that I okay want to get to. Uh, the first is that the the title comes from this uh this uh uh, hobo legend is like the the master hobo the super hobo the best of the hobos is called the emperor of the north pole and that's what lee marvin is trying to prove that he is by by besting ernest borgnine but they didn't call the movie emperor of the north they released it as emperor of the north uh although its original title was emperor of the north pole and I'm wondering if, if you agree with me that the reason why they didn't do that is because they didn't want people to think it was a movie about Santa Claus.
0: Oh, I can, I, I'll, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure of it. I'm sure people heard North Pole and they just thought, okay, Ernest Borgnine's got to be Santa Claus. Lee Marvin's going to be, I don't know. An elf. An elf. <laughs> um, no, I I absolutely think you're and they, right. And
1: they just didn't want to traumatize children with the fact that within in two minutes of the movie, Ernest Borgnine smashes some <laughs> dude's head in, and then he gets run over by a train and cut in half. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, one of the one of the shots I really like in
0: this movie is uh, it's Borgnine about they're about to board the train, and Borgnine um, goes to like a a closet and or a work closet or something like that and he opens the door and there's like three or four hammers in there like like heavy duty hammers and he like picks one up and feels it and he's like nah that's not the right hobo bashing hammer and he like puts it back on the on the rack and grabs another one uh yeah that's
1: a that's a great little detail scene like uh, i need a special hammer to to smash lee marvin (laughs) And, uh, and my other thought was, was a more serious one, which is that uh, I, I thought that this this film had a, a surprising uh, political resonance, which is this, this idea that, that Borgnine is so pathologically obsessed with hobos because he doesn't think anyone should get a free ride. And it's literally a free ride, and that he doesn't right. want anyone riding on his train. But the the phrase is is obviously a a, a standard part of the political lexicon nowadays. Whereas you know people who collect unempo- unemployment insurance are getting a free ride, and so you know there's this this idea that that we need to to not allow that because I don't know why, but. <laughs> just the 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 vehemence and the the venom with which borgnine spits it out i think is just a hilarious parody of this kind of uh of ultra you know right wing libertarian economic uh mindset that it was you know as much a a, a part of the 1930s when the film was said as it is today
0: mm-hmm. oh yeah definitely um yeah i think once again, you know, I think this movie, like The Train, uh, is strengthened by the fact that it's not preachy about stuff like that. But it's definitely, it's de- I absolutely agree, it's definitely there. Um, and um,
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it, not, it's, not like a, it, it's not subtle. It's not subtle, but it's, it's also not... It's not like not... an in-depth critique of, of modern capitalism. It's more just like a, a, a kind of funny resonance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I agree completely. Um, I definitely picked up on that. And what I also like about this movie is that, uh, well, okay, so, you know, there's a tendency to um, romanticize the
1: hobo. Yeah. And and this film very much plays into that with, like, all of the the cool lingo and the titles.
0: but But it also still shows the harsh reality of. You know, day to day existence. Um, I think particularly of the scene where um, Keith Carradine and Lee Marvin are strapped to the top of a train car, and it starts that you know lovely Pacific Northwest rain starts coming down, um, and they're just getting soaked. You know, but they've got no other options, and they're just there, and it's it's incredibly you know um, depressing. <laughs> I'm shocking, and then you also see you know you know, this is the, you know, the thirties, like you said, this is great depression, you know, so you see like the Hoovervilles and the, you know, the, um, the encampments of, of just a legion of homeless men, you know, you know, they they have, there's, there's camaraderie there, but it's
1: also this desperation too. And, And, you know, I appreciated that, that it wasn't, Right, and that and that, like, that forms the basis of the conflict between between Marvin and Carradine is that is that Carradine has romanticized this life. He's he's a hobo dilettante. Like right. he he's he's a young man who could be doing better, but he's in love with the hobo lifestyle. And right. Marvin is, is deeply offended by that. Yeah, he's like yeah. But on it, the other hand he like sees hobo talent in him and wants to <laughs> nurture that.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, Keith Carradine's like the you know the hobo Luke Skywalker, right? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Anakin Skywalker because you know he might turn to the dark side. But uh, yeah, uh, um, so yeah, I, that,
1: it's it's complicated. It's it's, 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 a, it's a, you know romantic. It's you know it's it's romantic vision of of hoboism
0: yeah i'd say it's complicated but it's not complex you know like the the way it 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 lays it out you know and i i do really like there are two kind of speeches that lee marvin gives about you know like you said the emperor of the north and and he really sells it um and there one is kind of a continuation of the other because they come pretty close together but um yeah i think it's all wrapped up in in him saying that you know where he's 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 just basically saying, you know, you're either born with it <laughs> or you ain't got it, you know. And uh, I don't know it. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna make a Maybelline joke, but uh, it, it didn't feel appropriate. No, so.
1: that, that doesn't seem right. I, I, <laughs> I can't see Lee Marvin selling ladies' cosmetics.
0: <laughs> he was a hell of an Avon lady, though I tell you. Um, so, so what do you th- what uh, do you think about the direction here from Aldrich? Um, because he, particularly, I want to talk about this fight scene. Can we talk about this fight scene?
1: Uh, the one from the end. Yeah. Sure.
0: It's pretty brutal.
1: Yeah, and uh, and what what when, when I think of Robert Aldrich as a director, I I that's what I, I think about just kind of the a, a brutal kind of ruthlessness and and straightforwardness. Yeah, just very
0: films. very blunt, um, and. What's great about is the way he films it is you know he doesn't cut very much you know and every shot has a purpose and you know it's once again it's not subtle you know there's a shot where uh, I you know I think at this point uh, Lee Marvin's holding a two by four and Ernest Borgnine has like a you know a chain (laughs) and they're like you know they're circling each other and in the background you see uh, a fire axe. You know, and you know, it's Chekhov's fire axe, you sure. know, that, you know, that thing's coming back. Um, but he but it's, it's done so well that that when when, you know, I'm not gonna say who ends up getting the, cha- the uh, axe uh, is very satisfying. Yeah, you know,
1: um, what, what other Aldrich have you seen?
0: Uh, I've actually only seen this and uh, Dirty Dozen. I I have never
1: seen Kiss Me Deadly, which is a horrible thing for me to admit. Yeah, you, uh, you've you've got to see Kiss Me Deadly because that that might be the the most brutish and most nasty of all of the film noirs. It's it's really really great.
0: Yeah, I no I know I need to see it. Um, whatever happened to Baby Jane? I need to see. I haven't, uh, I haven't
1: seen that one. I did just uh, just before the Super Bowl. I watched uh, the Longest Yard, which was the film he made just after Emperor of the North, which is the uh, football in prison movie with Burt Reynolds. Right, and how I, was that? I liked that a lot.
0: Did you? Yeah, it wasn't just a
1: similar kind of uh, of uh, amoral brutality to it that uh, I got a, a real kick out of. <laughs> this wasn't just uh, Super Bowl fever. Well, I mean, it was, but <laughs> but it's but it's a good movie, you know. Regardless.
0: Okay. Okay. I mean, I you know,
1: I I I don't like football. <laughs> there's, there's there's an inherent savagery to football, obviously. Yeah. And and you have to kind of enjoy that to enjoy the sport. Right. And and I do because I I don't know because I'm a terrible person because <laughs> aesthetics has to do with morality, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
0: Uh, yeah. I, so, what's your favorite Aldrich?
1: Oh, *Kiss Me Deadly*. *Kiss, okay. Kiss Me Deadly* is like uh, is like top five film noir for me. it's yeah. It's it's such a great movie, and it's. I don't want to build it up too much if you if you haven't seen it. Then just I, I just you tell you, you to go, go watch it. You can't.
0: I uh, know. I you're
1: you know it's
0: it's a huge gap that I need to rectify as soon as humanly possible. So uh, I will do that.
1: One. Uh, one less well-known uh, Aldrich film that I've seen that, that I liked a lot is uh, *Vera Cruz* uh, from 1954, which is a western with uh, I think Gary Cooper and Burt Lancaster. That uh, was is a lot of fun. Also, they're like in Mexico stealing gold or something, and and they're they are also all terrible people, and it's it's much more violent than you would think it would be. So yeah, I'm sensing a theme here with with Mr. Aldrich, <laughs> I'm sold. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, cool. Well, that's our discussion of Emperor of the North. Uh, Here's some more Woody Guthrie. This is Hobo's Lullaby. Go to sleep, you weary
2: hobo. Let the towns drift slowly by Listen to the steel rails humming That's a hobo's lullaby Think about tomorrow. Let tomorrow come and go. Tonight you've got a nice warm boxcar safe from all this wind and snow. I know the police cause you trouble They cause trouble everywhere But when you die and go to heaven You'll find no policeman there So go to sleep, you weary hobo Let the towns drift slowly by Listen to the steel rails humming That's a hobo's lullaby
1: Uh, thanks Woody from all accounts a great guy and a great artist uh it, that's our show for this week next week will be our our big oscar spectacular where we're going to watch a couple of uh, best picture winners that we have never seen before and get were, ready everybody and there were slim pickings there because i've <laughs> i've seen most of them so the ones Drum we're going to watch are, are ones that i've been dreading for quite a while and it's uh <laughs> The Great Zigfield from I think 1935, 36 somewhere around there. Wow. And uh, uh Rob Marshall's Chicago. <laughs> which is the only Best Picture winner of the last 50 years that I haven't seen and for good reason that I've been avoiding it. So, we we will see what happens.
0: You know, also, you know what I'll say though. Yeah. I uh, I have a feeling it might make for some good
1: podcasting. Yeah, maybe. I don't I don't know. <laughs> People, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna break out into songs. So do people that. really need to hear us say mean things about Rob Marshall? <laughs> there's yeah. a dearth of that on the internet. <laughs> yeah, he's doing he's doing something that I would like be really excited to see. But then I heard that he directed. He's doing the uh, Steven Sondheim Into the Woods. Right, and I'd be and like, I, w- see- I would love to see a movie of that. But then Rob Marshall's is directing it. And I'm like, oh shit. Yep. <laughs> What else are we going to do that week, Sean? Uh we're, we're making our Oscar picks. We're going to pick uh, the ones that we think are going to win, and we're going to pick the ones that we think should win. And we're also going to uh, name our, our top five movies of 2013 according to the way we count 2013 movies, which is the real way and the only legitimate one. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if you are in the Seattle area this week, you should go to the Film Forum Especially on Friday, February 14th, Valentine's Day. Uh, I saw a double feature at the Film Forum, it was probably like eight years ago now, that I thought was, was as good a Valentine's Day double feature as you could come up with. It was uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo and Nicholas Ray's On Dangerous Ground. It was a, a fantastic Valentine's Day. But yeah, I, think they, I think they've topped it this year. They're playing Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day and Leos Carax's Move Sang. <laughs> Two not ro- kind of romantic movies about blood.
0: Yeah, that's gonna be a hell of a time. You gonna take the wife?
1: Uh, she would not go with me if I I tried. I would like have to uh, kidnap her and, and drag her there. But Jeez. they're they're playing all week, not just on Valentine's Day. So. Cool. I, I want to see movie song. I haven't, I haven't seen it in a really long time, and I don't remember it very well, but I just saw Trouble Every Day a little while ago, and Vincent Gallo is really creepy. Yeah, he's
0: kind of a creepy dude. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you're in San Francisco, I feel like I may have talked about this before, but what the hell, I'm going to do it again. Uh, the Castor Theater uh, on Wednesdays, at least through the end of February, is doing uh, what they're calling Cohen Brothers Abridged. Uh, they're doing double features each uh, week. So February 12th, which probably no one will hear because I don't know if the show will be posted in time. They're doing Fargo and the man who wasn't there, which is my personal favorite. Uh, But February 19th, they're doing Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink, uh, which Miller's Crossing, I believe, is your favorite, Sean. That
1: is correct. Well, Big Lebowski, Miller's Crossing. Depends on my mood.
0: Okay. Um, and then February 26th, they're doing No Country for Old Men and A Serious Man, which I think is a really
1: interesting double feature. Um, I can so, see that they they, they they have a similar vibe to them, I think, Once yeah, you get well, past all of like the generic incongruencies.
0: I like that they're doing No Country first. And then closing with a serious man. I think that's a better way to do it um, than vice versa. But uh, so, yeah, For sure. Castro, San Francisco, amazing theater. Uh, you can find us online at the George Sanders We're also on Twitter at Geo Sanders Show. And what else are we? Oh, uh, we have an email at uh, the George Sanders Show at gmail.com. Um, and we'll probably. We're st- we're still working out the kinks on when we're going to be doing this Miyazaki podcast thing, but if you want to hear that, um, we'll tweet it or something, right, Sean?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it when it comes around. It'll it'll, it'll be a while. We're going to wait and try and see the wind rises. So it kind of depends on when it opens in Seattle. We're not really sure about that yet. So right. So without further ado, let's hear some more Woody Guthrie.
0: Um, this is a song that you picked, Sean. Train Forty Five. Yeehaw.